Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. I'm Josh Schneider-Weiler, and for this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Pippa Grange, the former head of people and team development for the Football Association. She told me about her work with England, her current role with the Right to Dream Academy, and about her new book, Fearless, How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself. A lot of people might be familiar with your name because of your work with the Football Association, but for people who don't know you, can you give us a brief background about how you've gotten to where you are now? Yep. I'm um, by trade, I am a performance psychologist. I was in Australia for 20 years, um, working predominantly in Australian rules football teams and rugby league across Australia and New Zealand um, and Olympic sports. And uh, from there, I, I really started my career both performance coaching on the field, but also uh, looking at how athletes and their families travel through life, how, you know, the, the stuff of life that they're involved in trying to work out and work through as they're performing. And after several years of doing that with the AFL Players Association, which was just so great, I loved being part of that organisation at that moment in time. I found myself more drawn to working on the bigger aspects of culture rather than just the individual aspects of performance. Um, and I kind of transitioned a little bit as I, I started my own business called Bluestone Edge. And I transitioned a little bit from doing just pure work with the individual to doing organizational and cultural work. And I call myself a culture coach now rather than the performance psychologist to kind of represent that. And I did quite a bit of work with business clients as well as sporting clients across that period of time and across my time in California for a couple of years until I had an opportunity to come back to England and work with the FA where I ran what was at the time called the People and Teams Department, 16 England teams from under 15s, boys and girls through to first team. And I I ran that department for just short of two years and um, worked Uh, myself in the men's senior team through the 2018 World Cup. Uh, There's so much to unpack there, but it's interesting you call yourself a culture coach now instead of a performance psychologist. Why did you make that change? And can you maybe explain the difference in that? Yeah, I think... um, Performance psychology is just such a useful discipline and a useful set of tools to help somebody uh, manage their performance, get the absolute optimum out of themselves on the field. But sometimes it is maybe, um, in my experience, it has been maybe underused or too narrowly focused on performance on the field and not emphasized enough what needs to happen for the person in the whole of their life uh, to present a really optimal field or discipline of work. So there was that first shift from sort of, you know, whole uh, performer to whole person. And then the shift beyond that to sort of, well, they can be as amazing as they like as a, a whole person. And that's certainly going to elevate their performance. However, if they're still operating in environments that are complex, difficult, fear-driven, you know, underwhelming in some other way, then the whole thing doesn't become optimal. We don't, we still don't find full potential. So for me, the opportunity to work with coaches and uh, teams behind the teams on what it is that helps an individual on the field of play really become free 
and excellent from a performance psychology point of view was just too compelling to turn away from. So I I really moved that emphasis away from one-on-one work with the individual to working through the coaches and staff to get the, the performance results on the field. So you were working in the United States when that opportunity came at the FA. How did that come about? Yeah, I, I was um, working for a business client of mine in Los Angeles, um, and I had a call from Dave Slemon, actually, from Elite Performance Partners, and he said that there was a, a role that was, uh, you know, a, a really interesting role with a client of his in in the UK, and I... I actually thought at the time, because he it was positioned as performance psychology initially, and I thought, uh, you know, I, I don't know about just pure performance psychology anymore. I don't know how interested I am in that. But over the course of several conversations with him and then with the people at FA, Dan Ashworth, Dave Reddin, you know, I could see that they were really trying to achieve something special and the job became uh, much more appealing once I realised the, the potential for it and the breadth of the role. So, um, yeah, I decided to take the plunge and I, I got to England on the, I think it was the 29th of November and started on the 4th of December 2017. So not long before we were in prep camp for World Cup. You know, culture is obviously a, a quite general word and it, it's hard to kind of define. But when you walked into that FA setup, how did you look at their culture? How did you assess it? What, what things did you look for to learn about the culture of the place? You know, I mean, I think the first thing that you do when you walk into any establishment when you're a culture coach or you want to learn about the culture is listen. And so, you know, my first period of time was just spent really trying to understand how it was, how things worked in the place. Um, You know, I I always look for a couple of things directly, and that's the quality of relationships, um, you know, whether people actually feel very free in their relationships and also where the power actually Lies. So power is an interesting thing in culture. It doesn't, it's not always with the person who's got the top job. It's not always with the person in charge. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, it can be in another place in teams that can sometimes be with a a really likable person or it can be with a really um, difficult person where the power lies. So I, I look for those things initially. And I also, I ran a couple of exercises. I, that I call uh, ghosts in the walls. So, you know, some sort of kind of creative exercises to say, you know, what what would, if there were ghosts in these walls, what would they tell us about um, the culture around here and um, ha- how it's been historically, not just how it's been today. So I spent a lot, a lot of time sort of gathering and listening to how it actually is because culture is a live thing. It's not carved in stone. So you need to go and understand its history and how it got to be the way it is today and and also how it's continuing to be made on a daily basis. So when you did that with England, what did you find out? Well, lots of things. It's a a big organisation. I think one of the things that was really uh, central in that organisation was that they had been on a huge turnaround journey under Dan and probably spearheaded by Dave Reddin. Um, and they'd really gone from a an organisation that was uh, not as professional as it could be in some aspects. They'd really invested hard in getting um, a fully professional outfit 
um, at St George's Park from a, an England team's perspective. And they were actually in pretty good nick in a lot of places. They'd done some really great work on the physical prep, done some really great work on the strategy. And I think culture was probably that last block for them, that last missing piece um, to really bring that to life. Although it had it certainly it had started, but yeah, that that sort of live um, joining of the dots culture-wise was probably the last little bit for them. A lot of people will remember from that 2018 World Cup how the players on on the team, you know, really seemed together. Uh, there was a lot of camaraderie, and it seemed like the members were really open to each other. How did you promote that inclusivity and openness amongst the group? You know, I think it's so important when we do culture work that, first of all, we take a step back and uh, recognize that to do this work well, that it's not hero work. It's just it's not one person coming in and changing things and shaking things up. And, you know, it's a layering of different skill sets that make the whole thing work. So there's, there's two things I would say in terms of what was my involvement in making that happen. One is that I had an amazing coach who gave me full access and said, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to listen and, and, you know, we'll roll with it. Um, And that made everything really so much easier that there was buy-in from the very top. Um, But secondly, I think that there was an opportunity to have a whole heap of conversations with the team behind the team and the broader organization, let alone the players, about that just hadn't been had yet, you know, the kind of just high performance culture conversations about what did they want to achieve and what did they want that to feel like and what memories might that make for them and what was in the way of that stuff. So the sort of old notion of performance psychology is, okay, somebody's got a mental block about taking a penalty kick. That's really just a small slither of the work that gets done. The much more impactful stuff is what what is the tone of this team how free can people be in this team can people raise their voice if they have a concern what's the quality of relationships between players and staff and between you know among players and among staff um, what gets left unsaid what's the stuff that's you know under the waterline culturally and when we actually when somebody can actually open that open those conversations compassionately and with leadership and, you know, with, with I guess, a degree of skill, that really is a, a deal changer. You know, it's hard to, it, one of the things with this work is it's very, very hard to quantify in the same way as other disciplines in performance, um, how it works or why it works or what proof can you offer that that made the difference? Because it's kind of a constellation of small efforts towards um, people doing things differently and with more more quality human relationships. So, you know, I think those things are absolutely critical in sort of how did I approach it? And I'm eternally grateful for the opportunity that the organisation at that moment in time was able to give me to do that work. Uh, You just gave a lot of credit there to Gareth Southgate, the manager. How did he kind of help you in this process I mean, Gareth, you know, he's, he's very much on the record as being a, an open-minded, forward-thinking, very humanistic kind of coach. He's, he's interested in people. So, you know, he's – and one thing that I really respect about him is he behaves the same way with players and staff. 
So his willingness to step forward and, and like really build those extraordinary relationships with staff and show care alongside everything else that was sort of being required of people who were really lifting and really pushing hard to get the result for the team or with the team. He really is an excellent leader in that respect. So the most important thing he did was bring that set of characteristics and qualities as a, as a human being into the role. But also he's an excellent listener. So, you know, he's the person who will take uh, guidance without ego. And um, that makes a job like the one I had there so much easier because, you know, it's, if you don't have to compete for airspace, you can just have real conversations about stuff that might matter. So when you get a leader like that that can stay open, I think that's enormously impactful. You spoke earlier about tone, and that's something that is really hard, you know, to change or to improve. I mean, it's, it's as you mentioned, subtle. How do you kind of approach changing the tone of the culture? And how did you maybe in the case of England? Well, t you're right. Tone is um, it's hard to uh, describe, isn't it? It's hard to sort of put your finger on, but you, it's something that's, a f that's felt. You know, if you walk into a room and the tone is uh, withdrawn or cold or too if it's elitist rather than elite, you feel it straight away. Whereas if the tone is really a high performance tone, like a, an accountability tone, you feel it straight away. So some of it is by feel and observations of the kinds of interactions that people have or, you know, the uh, the time that's given to different sets of priorities. I always think about in England, you know, a really uh, excellent tone indicator for me, which was no surprise by the time I knew both the team and, and Gareth Southgate, was that in the middle of the tournament, you know, when we were at base camp in Russia, Fabian Delph went home for the birth of his baby and you know there was just absolutely everybody was just celebrating that for him and there was absolutely no question about where he should be at that moment in time other than with his family and witnessing something that was going to be wonderfully important in his life forever not just for that moment in time and that was a tone moment that's a moment where you know it could have been that he was made to feel less um, comfortable about making a choice like that, or maybe that his loyalties might be questioned or his loyalties were split. But the level of tone in the team and in the camp at that time was, of course, you should go because there was a genuine investment in the human beings. And that's a great example of tone. So, you know, they're the small things that you notice and work on. And, you know, the changes are sometimes just five degrees um, it's just a, a turn of the dial in one direction to um, get closer to that level of relationship, that level of quality, that level of honesty and transparency um, and move away from ego power, anything that makes somebody feel less free. And, and when you see them like that, you know straight away that the, the team's in really good shape. I think one thing that kind of epitomized the shift in tone uh, between that England team and previous ones was when there was the open media day before the tournament and all the right, players yeah. were there for all of the media to just have an open environment, much like kind of before the Super Bowl in the United States. Was that your idea? No, that was um, the fabulous Greg Demetrio and Andy Walker and the, the media team at England and um 
they really worked hard on changing that perception. They did things like that and then they did very cool things that you would have seen or read about at the time in terms of the media centre in Russia in uh, base camp or near base camp where, you know, the interactions with journalists who were also working their hearts out to, to do their job, um, they deliberately changed the nature of the interactions to make them more friendly, to make them more human. So, you know, it all came from the same source of, a, of you know, a set of decisions to change the tone. Um, but that was their work. As, you know, I've said this many times now, as the unicorns in the pool was Bryce Kavanaugh's work from the physical performance side. But, that's you know, they're the kind of decisions that came from that same source of what tone do we want and what will feel so different. You know, if you saw any of the footage from that NFL-style media day, everybody was enjoying themselves. That is tone. If people are having more fun, that is the right tone. And it doesn't detract from performance. It's a source of energy, a source of positive motivation to do more of the same. So it builds momentum. You know, it's not um, it, it, fun isn't something that takes away from performance in any way. Something that has been talked about a lot recently has been the work of Marcus Rashford and Raheem Sterling, who you've worked with when you were with England. And, you know, a lot of that conversation has been kind of in the context of their work off the pitch, not on it. Did you work with them on how they could, you know, accomplish their goals off the pitch as well? Not specifically with individual players, but obviously one of the things that was really important to England was um, the changed, uh, how England as a nation and the hundreds and thousands of amazing fans who were supporting the team, um, how they, what kind of experience they had. So, you know, the more open the England players were on things that mattered to them, the more unity the team uh, the nation felt behind them. So I think that, that, you know, everybody just enjoyed the performances through Russia. But there was something else alongside that was much more purposeful, that was about the sense of being in it together, of um, changing history, of, you know, breaking the drought. There was, there was some sort of real purposeful, unified effort with the fans and, um I think everybody really, really enjoyed that. So it wasn't individual stuff with players, but collectively, certainly those choices were made. Did you have to encourage transparency between coaches and players or were those conversations kind of already happening? There was a lot already done. Sometimes it's a question of how, you know, people want to talk about how do I have that difficult conversation or how do I increase the levels of intimacy within camp or within a team? Uh, that's not specific to England by any stretch. That's something that maybe a lot of elite sport and elite men's sport isn't yet very skilled at. And I think an area where, you know, there's there's loads of potential for improvement. But, you know, transparency and being willing to sort of be vulnerable, to say what you really think, to turn up as you, you know, that's not as easy as it looks. It involves courage and risk. Um, and sometimes people need support on how to do that, how to open the batting with, with that kind of conversation or that kind of uh, level of intimacy. And, you know, that's that's work I've done over many years in, in different teams. Yeah, there's a, a really powerful, I think, uh, moment in your book where you talk about that and you use racism as an example and you describe a player who encounters racism from a coach, but he doesn't mm -hmm. feel like he can have 
that conversation with the coach. Can you kind of tell the story from your book and then, you know, maybe we can kind of go into it in a little bit more detail? Sure. Yeah, the story of the player that I name Mo in the book, obviously everybody's de-identified to protect their confidence in the book. But it's a story of a guy who felt that he was being um, singled out and racially taunted with masked banter. So, you know, banter is one of those tricky things that it's all great while it's going great, but it it can certainly have an edge. And his coach was uh, using some terminology and some wording that made Mo feel really, really uncomfortable, but he couldn't work out how to raise it without feeling ostracized or even more singled out. And when he did try, the coach's responses were, you know, quite heavy handed or aggressive and um, left Mo feeling very, very lonely and very sort of disenfranchised from the team. And he had to kind of work out how to deal with that and deal with his fear. But one of the really important things in that story for me is that it wasn't just about Mo finding the courage to actually go and talk one-on-one with the coach about what he was experiencing and and why it hurt, um, which he did do. But so much of the injury for him is that nobody else in his team spoke up about it or could mention it to him. So, you know, he he felt really lonely because nobody else knew how to deal with it. Nobody could even put their arm around him and say, mate, I'm sorry, this is happening because it was just too awkward for people to talk about. And that was what really hurt him. He could rationalise the coach being not capable of uh, seeing the world through his eyes, or he could even find some forgiveness for the coach's ignorance in the language that he was using and find courage to deal with that. But it really troubled him that culturally nobody else mentioned it. It was like Emperor's New Clothes. You know, nobody could face it with him. And that was a, a complete lack of sort of human intimacy and and, um, anybody being willing to be vulnerable and not out of poor intention, but out of not knowing how to even open that sort of conversation. So on the one hand, you could say that the coach wasn't empathetic, but on a bigger scale, you can say that the culture of that team was not where it should have been. So, you know, let's say, you know, that team called you up and said, hey, Pippa, you know, can you come in here and kind of change things? How can we improve the situation? What would you have said? I would have gone straight to the coach. You know, we talk about culture as growing ground up because you make it in your daily behaviours. We all make it in our daily behaviours. And whoever you are in the team, it matters what you do. Your voice always matters. But it is absolutely led by a coach in a something like a football team. So, um, and, and that's where power comes into play too. So in that circumstance, I would have gone and had a very open, very compassionate conversation with the coach and expected to be rebuffed. And I would have had to go back 20 times until I'd found a way to get through to talk about whether or not that was his intention. The way it was landing on that young player was as an injury. So I would have started there. It's uh, it's it's the hardest thing to do to go directly to the source of difficulty. But that's what the culture work actually is, to be able to subtly and sometimes not so subtly challenge uh, the difficulties that you encounter. Yeah, you made it seem like you can get quite a lot of pushback, obviously, from coaches. So I'm sure you've experienced that in the past. How do you kind of push back on the coach even when they don't really want to see that there might be an issue? 
I think it really takes a lot of compassion. Sometimes, you know, I, I talk about this a lot in the book. One of the things that we do when we're fearful is that we become defensive, we judge, we criticize, we make sure that we stay separate. And that can mean be, being too good to listen or whatever else. So it really does take a lot of compassion to have hard conversations with people. Sometimes we want to, you know, especially if there's anger involved, we, you know, with the person who's feeling hurt by something like that, the likelihood is it becomes an argument or a conflict of some kind, but that's not useful. That's not particularly useful other than getting the feeling, you know, off your chest if you're the player like Mo. But I think that you really have to go in and try and build a picture, presuming that the intention isn't ugly, but that there are layers of reasons and defensiveness and maybe ego and maybe having never thought about it from a different perspective. Um, go in and build that picture um, and have the patience to do that and the respect to do that because sometimes somebody might not just see it the way you see it so clearly and you have to build the picture and sometimes they do see it and they're embarrassed that they've done that and they don't want to be called out on it and so they'll be defensive. So again, the compassion becomes really, really important to raise those difficult things. Yeah, and in many ways, you're kind of fighting the culture or the tradition of, you know, a lot of the people that are involved. Obviously, football comes from, you know, working class culture and, uh, you know, experiences. And in a lot of working class culture and experiences, openness and people being vulnerable is not common. Yep, that's that was my experience growing up in Yorkshire. <laughs> as a working in a working class family, most certainly. But one thing you can also say is that people will, even though they might not prefer to be vulnerable, it's not a dishonesty. It's a, a withdrawal from the openness. So you know, if you can build that bridge, people will talk straight if you can approach it the right way. And it's so important to approach those difficult conversations with clarity and respect and compassion, but be very clear about what it is that you want to say. I think the worst thing that happens is if you dance around it too much um, and you kind of half, somebody half says what they mean and they don't actually get to the point. And, you know, uh, coaches or, or leaders are generally quite tough, quite thick skinned as well. So if you can actually manage to say what you mean clearly and why you think that they might want to look at it from a different angle. Um, I can think of an example with a coach in Australia who used a homophobic slur. I was in the coach's box at an AFL match and he used a homophobic slur just before three quarter time when something went wrong on the pitch. And I knew I had to address it with him, but then wasn't the time to address it with him. And it took me a good few days to do it, to sort of take a run up and think about how I wanted to position it so that it didn't become a conflict or a judgment of some kind which isn't very useful but it became something that was valuable to him and you know by the time I actually got to sort of saying hey you know this is what happened at three quarter time I don't know if you even heard it come out of your mouth but you know in the heat heat of battle that's what you said and this is why I think that might be a problem and you know I wanted to bring it to your attention and leave it with you to to reflect on and he he was an amazing coach and he had the good grace to come straight back and say 
I'm horrified that I said that. I didn't hear myself and it won't happen again. But more importantly, I'll speak to my coaches and, you know, apologise to them too. And that was it's just those little five degree turns that make the difference on doing that. But it's not so it's not, I'm not suggesting for a second it's easy. That took me a week. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I wrote the I wrote the book, but you know, it took me a week. Um in the run up to sort of to have that conversation, but it was a valuable conversation for him because I knew and I trusted that he wanted to be the best kind of coach he could be. And that was a, an old habit that he'd never even heard come out of his own mouth, you know, and sometimes that's, uh, and there was a little bit of that with Mo's coach too, but I think maybe he'd started something and been called out for it by Mo early and then he got defensive and his ego got involved and he carried on um, because he didn't want to be proved wrong or he didn't have the substance at that time to apologize. And, you know, eventually that's where it ended up. You know, we're talking about difficult conversations, and there was one quote that really stuck out to me from your book uh, that I'd like to read right now. You said, quote, it is scary to talk about soul or love in our hyper-rational, data-driven world, but I am convinced these are the missing pieces in our potential and in fighting fear. This is the only genuine way to talk about change or becoming fearless. A lot of coaches, at least that I've had in the past, would probably say it's not in their remit or in their job to talk about the soul or love. What would you say to them? Yeah, I I mean, it's the first pushback, right? But I think it's all in the presentation. I've heard coaches talk about psychology and like, we don't do this emotional stuff. We don't do this fluff. But I tell you what, if you look at any coach on the sideline, you'll see emotion. It's just that we <laughs> might be potentially a little bit more um, comfortable with certain expressions of emotion. And anybody who's been involved in sport across their life will know how much love there is in it. And in fact, that's, you know, that's, that's almost the main reason, the relationships, the love, the, the journey that you go on together. That's really the point. That's what I call winning deep in the, in the book. You know, so it's how do you position it? I, I think I've said before, um, I'm definitely not putting soul on my res- resume as I'm uh, applying for a job. <laughs> it's, not the, it's not the first thing I'm going to talk <laughs> about. But I, but I do really believe that when you were talking about tone before, Tone is a part of what, what's the soul of the team? What's the essence of the team? What rituals matter to it? How does it see its identity and its history? You know, who are the heroes and villains? All of those things are soul questions for the team. And there is just abundant in sport. We just term it differently. And I think when those things can be brought to life, we're really starting to work at the right level. And, you know, same with emotion, you know, why would you be more vulnerable? It's not for the sake of it. It's because more vulnerability leads to more freedom, which leads to the ability to take the kind of risks you need to win. All of it is purposeful and it just feels very different when that stuff is on the menu versus, you know, everybody's wearing a performance mask at all times. You said the term winning deep before, and you talk about that a lot in the book, and you compare it with winning shallow. Can you explain the distinction between the two and why it's important? Yeah, winning shallow for me is a term, uh, I coined the terms because I'd noticed across my career that so many times people who had 
absolutely every trapping of success and every, you know, from the outside, they looked like absolute champions. With quite um, worrying regularity, they didn't feel fulfilled. And it wasn't like a I've still got more in me. I've got more to give. I'm not ready to quit yet. Kind of not fulfilled, as in I've, you know, I've still got energy for the fight. It was more not good enough, kind of fulfilled or unfulfilled, I should say. And you know, the pattern with that was that there was always a feeling of scarcity, as kind of like a a mentality of never enough or not not being enough, not doing enough, not having achieved enough, no finish line kind of mentality. And it really robs people of joy and robs people, for me, of, of the point of their sporting achievements, which is that sort of, you know, testing of your own mettle and knowing that you got there with blood, sweat and tears and left nothing out there. If there's no sort of feeling of just joyful um you know, full stop at the end of that, then what was the point? So winning shallow is where you, you're constantly chasing the next thing, uh, the next trophy, the next time, the next medal, the next, you know, accolade. Um, but none of it ever feels like it fills you. It never stops the hunger. It never is enough. And it's, it's a very lonely place to be where winning deep is where you actually manage to achieve that level of joy, fulfillment, um, sense of purpose. I guess meaning is the central, central bit. Um, there's, there's meaning to what you do. Um, and that's when you're winning deep. Some people in sports might push back on that winning shallow isn't necessarily a good thing. I mean, for example, when this lockdown started, you know, a couple months back, everyone was watching the Michael Jordan documentary. And of course, we know Jose Mourinho. Both of those guys are kind of notorious for chasing the next title, chasing the next trophy. How would you respond to their thinking that it is super important to be constantly chasing that next trophy at all costs? I loved the Last Dance series. I thought, you know, it. it um, what an incredible athlete he is it's like anybody any coach would want that level of discipline and drive and but for me my question when I watch that is how did he feel how did he feel at stumps you know was it worth it for him um did he find what he was looking for you know what was his holy grail and I think that that Michael Jordan's maybe a, a kind of like a superhuman example that's that's not your standard athlete but I, I wish I could ask him that question that, you know, did you feel the way you thought you would feel when you were a six-year-old kid playing in the backyard with your dad? Did you feel the way you thought you would when all the glory came your way? You know, so it's about that, really. And I think that for some people, they really can thrive on that eternal drive. But for most people, it's just too exhausting. And there are many, in my opinion, there are many more people who will do better with a sense of freedom and a genuine sense that, you know, they can take all the risks that they want and they can find that sort of gritty, never give up energy without having to feel like nothing is ever enough. And that's the distinction, you know, it's like, can you feel enough? Can you feel reward for what you're putting your blood, sweat and tears into? So how do you know when a coach or a player is maybe being too obsessive or their strive for perfection is too much versus it's just at the right level? 
I think it's not a static point. It's dynamic, you know. So there might be moments in a season where a team really need a good rev up and, you know, pushing harder is exactly right at that point in time. Um, or times where, you know, you need to take your foot off the gas and they're exhausted or they're bored or, you know, something has to give. And that's what will bring the right balance back, the right um, cultural balance, the right energy back. Um, so it's dynamic rather than a set point. And I think, you know, being constantly aware, being able to read the dash of where the team's at or, or where you're at as a coach too. Like how are you feeling? Like, can you check in with yourself and what do you need? And not being afraid, and it is afraid, um, not being afraid to do less. Sometimes, you know, um, I can think of uh, a couple of AFL teams I've worked with where just cancelling a pre-season weight session and stuffing about going for Nando's or playing half-court basketball or something has just changed the whole mood in a pre-season camp and that's a win. So it's not feeling like you have to drive every detail and cross every T and dot every I on your plan if the mood isn't right, if the tone isn't right, the energy, you know, it takes courage to do less. And I think that's a, a really important point. So at the moment, you're currently leading cultural strategy for the Right to Dream Academy and FC Norseland in Denmark. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with them? Yeah, it's uh, Right to Dream Group are a, an amazing organization that basically Tom Vernon founded 20 years ago now, um, started off on a dust pitch in Accra in Ghana, and him and his now wife Helen having 10 kids move into their house. <laughs> um, and, um, and, you know, now they have a, a really wonderful ecosystem of opportunities across the academy in Ghana and about to expand further and the academy and uh, a club at FC Norgeland in uh, just outside Copenhagen. And their whole deal is to provide opportunities where they don't exist because the, the belief is that excellence can be found anywhere. And just because people start from humble beginnings, it doesn't mean they can't find their full potential. It's just the opportunity that's missing. So they use football and education and character building as the three platforms from which they create opportunities for young people, boys and girls. A girls program's only a couple of years old, but their boys program's super successful now. You have, you know, graduates from Ivy League schools in the US and um, and playing pro across uh, Europe. So it's, it's a real success story and it's a pleasure to be involved with them. And, and my job with them is um, helping them really steer properly and make great choices as they expand according to their a cultural manifesto and, you know, really offering that sort of uh, to be an ally to all the leaders in there to get that really right as they as they move forward. But what makes them really unique or different and that you're working with them to kind of help them with that? I guess there's a couple of things. Um, one is their emphasis on character. So there's a load of great academies out there, but the they have uh, right to dream have a sort of an equal weighting on the development of character and purpose in athletes the level of educational achievement and excellence that they can achieve and football so rather than it just be a football academy and you'll live and die by your footballing ability if that doesn't 
what they're seeing as you develop um, over a long-term commitment from them, you know, five-year-plus commitment from them um, for every kid that comes into the academy, if what they're seeing is that you're probably not going to make it as a pro footballer, then how are we going to help you make it academically so that you have a future opportunity? How are we going to make sure that you really have a great social intelligence, you are willing to make social impact through the opportunities that have been given to you and you'll give back to the communities that you you're involved with so they're building a you know they're helping to build's not the right word that they're helping to unleash the potential in amazing young people in a number of different ways and it's not cut and dry make it don't make it football so i really enjoy that about them that they they're genuinely building an ecosystem for people to achieve and I love the fact that they're flipping the script a little bit. So, you know, it's not that kid with not many opportunities from Ghana gets an op- you know, gets a, a pathway through to a, a Danish Superliga club. It's sometimes it's the other way around. It's like the Danish Superliga guys are going down for a an immersion experience at the academy in Ghana and across Accra and they are learning from the students down there they're coming away with kind of slack jaws going that was amazing Uh, that taught me so much so it's really flipping the script a a little bit on uh, how we understand you know cultural lessons and how we understand what good looks like and also like FCN I think is the the only club to be a, a member of Common Goal. So they're walking their talk and there's a lot more in design and development right now for, for their future. So it's an exciting place to be. Yeah, uh, full disclosure to people listening right now, I've traveled to FC Northland and I've uh, sat in on some of these character sessions and I went to one and they were asking the players who their favorite players were, but they said not just, you know, for their skills on the field but they said you know the whole package you know who was who's your favorite player and like almost half of them i think said paul pogba but they said it for the work he was doing outside of you know football and you know i couldn't help but think of you know england players right now we mentioned i said earlier raheem sterling marcus rashford and the work they're doing outside those character sessions I would imagine for players right now there, they might be saying Marcus Rashford or Raheem Sterling because of the work they're doing. Most definitely. And it's, um, you know, using just non-football examples too for the International Women's Day event that actually got cancelled right at the last moment because of coronavirus. The activations that they did last year too, players from the first team for the men and the women all choose somebody who is a a hero of theirs to go on their shirt, um, a a female hero of theirs to go on their shirt. And, you know, so they have everybody from sort of Serena Williams to Maya Angelou to, you know, the um, Prime Minister of Denmark. and, And they all can tell you exactly why that woman has been really impressive to them. And, it you know, it's their sporting prowess, but it's not or their uh, performance in their particular field, but it's not just that. It's something about their character. So they really start to sort of see what does good look like in more rounded terms. I think that's awesome. What is it like for you to see um, many of those England players that you used to work with on a daily basis do the work that they're doing right now? 
Oh, I think I think they're awesome. Uh, somebody like what Rashford achieved with, um, you know, the school dinners and his campaign recently. It's just what a what a brilliant way to use your platform or your moment in the sun where where you are a role model, whether you're choosing that or not off the field. So, you know, he's I, I just have great respect for the fact that he he's chosen to do that. Or Raheem, you know, and there's there's many more that do sort of quiet work that doesn't necessarily make it to the front page of the the paper as well. But that purpose being a purpose-driven athlete like that, I think is just so valuable, not just to society, but I think it's very protective for the individual too. It gives them a sense of meaning that's be well beyond the scoreboard and the season and doesn't take anything away for the, from their passion for, for the scoreboard win either. It just gives them a, a broader sense of life. And uh, for me, that's, uh, you know, I write about that in the book, that's uh, of huge value. I want to finish our conversation talking about your perspective as a woman. You have been working in elite sport for a long time, and we know that most of elite sport in the UK and elsewhere is dominated by men. How have you been treated, or what has your experience been like as a woman in a man's world? I've been treated really well. I've been very fortunate. I've had some amazing people to work with across almost every one of my sports and actually one of my favorites was rugby league new zealand rugby league um which might not be sort of the um the environment that you think would be most favorable to women but so welcoming and so inclusive um so i've always felt very very respected and welcome though i haven't really come up against too much in the opposite direction but you also ask how does it feel and I've got to say that while you are the only one or one of only a few women on a team, it never feels quite comfortable because the difference is there. You know, it's obvious and there are, uh, think about changing rooms at Wembley, they're only ever designed for one gender to be in there. You know, same with the MCG in Melbourne where I worked for much of my career. And and you do feel awkward to a degree. I, I say that, but it has been very much helped by uh, amazing, supportive team members, you know, fellow colleagues who make it easy. I've um, talked about one of them in my um, first book, guy at uh, Geelong Cats who just told me stuff about how the coach is on this particular day and what to do and where not to be and, and how it rolls when you're you know, not familiar with the environment. He just really was an absolute boon for me. And I think where your colleagues are genuinely warm and welcoming and open, it removes those barriers. But any time where you're the minority in a group on some huge identity factor, it takes just a little bit more energy and a little bit more effort. And I look forward to the day when staff teams are maybe a bit more balanced than they are today. Have you noticed a a shift or a change in the environment of some of these rooms that you've been in, uh, just in your career? Um, in terms of gender, you mean, or acceptance of gender? No, acceptance of gender and just the overall environment in terms of, I mean, you, you said the culture or, you know, the tone. People used to make a lot more gay jokes, for example, back in the day, yeah. or maybe more, mm -hmm. you know, misogynistic jokes. I don't know if, if that happens as much now, or do you feel like, I don't know, the tone in the room has changed, maybe? Yeah, the tone in the room has definitely changed. I mean, I've been in the field for, you know, 25 years almost. Um, 
So it's <laughs> it's definitely changed. I think about Australian rules, but sort of, you know, uh, back in the day or rugby league or something, certainly it has. But I think that it's not, it's, the change for me is that it's not cleaned up or politically correct. In fact, those environments are really sterile where it's politically correct and cultures, you know, that's really hard work if it's just tight because it's the opposite of what you want but they they're just more informed maybe they've they have slightly broader views about things so you know i i really don't hear too much of the old school stuff anymore that's you know it, it would be unfair to say that that was still kicking around in the ways that it used to be and i don't think the younger generations of athletes or staff would tolerate that for i don't think they will tolerate it for much longer if it's if there are still pockets of that around. You know, what's something that has your focus or has your passion, you know, for the next coming months or the next couple of years? Uh, what's something that you're really focused on? Girls, women and girls. I've spent most of my career working in men's sport and I really love where Right to Dream is taking women and girls football. Um, so a whole heap of things happening sort of behind the scenes in that respect. So my big focus for the coming period of time is to make sure that we're giving girls, you know, academy age girls really fantastic opportunities as well. And that women's football and women's sport and women in sport, are really, we're really starting to um, illuminate the potential and the massive amounts of talent there as well. So that's that's got my attention for the while. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure too. Thanks so much, Josh. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website at trainingground.guru or on Twitter at ground underscore guru.